and welcome back to Roll to Cast, the Any Award-winning TTRPG podcast of both actual plays and interviews with the creators. My name is Sean, and I am joined here at the in-person table by Ellen. Hello, I'm Ellen. Uh, following the finale of our Starfinder adventure this season and our postseason wrap-up episode, we are continuing our interseason content as we sit down around the virtual table with the co-creator of Starfinder and Pathfinder. He was the very first creative director for Starfinder, the executive editor of the Pathfinder Tales novel line, and now a full-time author. Of course, Dark Hearts, uh, his latest novel, is going to be coming out June 6th. Please welcome to Roll to Cast, James L. Sutter. Hello, sir. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. <laughs> I always wish we had some sort of soundbite for when we introduce guests. It's just, you know, a- uproarious applause. Just the, just the applause, you know. Yeah. <laughs> we can edit it in later, but we'd blow out our mics if we did that now. <laughs> wow. <laughs> how is how is everything on your end? I, I, I think as opposed to us in Australia, you have bright, sunny niceness over there. We're kind of just being dragged, kicking and screaming into winter now at the moment. So how is it, how's things over in the States oh, for you, James? It's, it's gorgeous right now. Oh, um, well. Uh, <laughs> Rub it in, why don't you? <laughs> the last couple of years have been weird because with climate change, uh, like everything gets nicer and nicer, except that all the forests catch on fire. So smoke season starts pretty early now, which is not a thing we used to have. So everybody's... <laughs> Kind of enjoying it and also a little bit depressed all the time. Wow, what a poignant metaphor. It's like, oh, things are nice. <laughs> things get nice, but occasionally it's all on fire. <laughs> but we just yep. try and not talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> Basically. So kind of the way that we usually uh, structure this. So for those uh, who are unaware, uh, James L. Sutter, um, I'll say it was uh, quite instrumental in the, um, in the, the creation, the inception um, and the early launch of Starfinder. So, so we're coming at a, a bit of a, a different direction than we sometimes usually do with some of the people we have on this show. Uh, but in saying that, you're, you're very much a multidisciplinary uh, artist in terms of um, the different kind of avenues that you've just fallen into certain jobs in terms of like journalism um, and editing and then later writing and, and TTRPG uh, kind of world building. Yeah, music. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, the list goes on and on. And, and kind of what I'm very interested in is casting our minds back to early early James little Jimmy as it were um in kind of just uh, like early childhood the kind of things that are uh, creatively got you going and where your interest lay because obviously it seems like in a lot of cases you kind of fell into these uh different um jobs and such what kind of grabbed your interest um kind of took your fancy at an early age oh my god well I mean I'd always liked writing basically as soon as I could read I wanted to write I have this thing that's sort of defined my life where whenever I consume some form of art that I really enjoy I immediately want to turn around and try and see if I can do it myself um <laughs> and sometimes I can and sometimes I can't but it means that I end up as kind of a dilettante doing all sorts of different stuff across genres and media but um, you know, writing was always, always one of my loves, you know, I, from as, as soon as I could read anything, I was, you know, bagging out quote unquote novels on my parents' typewriter <laughs> or drawing comics for myself, even though I knew I couldn't draw. I actually remember the first comic I ever remember drawing. Um, I remember thinking as a kid, I know I don't know how to draw, but I still want to make comics. So I decided to get around it by making this main character a blob. And it was just <laughs> a blob who was, you know, a, uh, uh, noir detective, right? So it's like it's a blob, but he's got a fedora and a gun. This so is like, amazing. Why has this not been published? 
It was not good, but it was one of those, I knew my limitations and I was going to do it anyway. And that's probably defined most of my career, depending on who you ask. Like, maybe I'm not qualified to do this, but I'm going to try anyway. So, yeah. So I, um, you know, I was always writing uh, up when I got into, uh, well, I mean, I got into gaming as a kid as well. Um, you know, in fifth grade, my fifth grade teacher taught a bunch of us how to play Dungeons and Dragons. And so that kind of lit our, uh, lit that spark, but I had no idea that was a career. And so, you know, I was always writing, but then in high school, I got really into punk rock and playing in bands. And so I did that, uh, you know, all up through college and beyond got into journalism um, I, did, I actually didn't get into journalism until college because in high school I hadn't been, uh, the way I remember it is that it was a little bit of a popularity contest to work on like the school newspaper and I was not popular. And really? so I, yeah. <laughs> and so I didn't get in on journalism until I was already at college. Man, uh, Australia is very different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that straight up shocks me that, that you'd be. <laughs> Sorry, that that working in the we, school newspaper. We say this as the drama kids of our respective oh, yeah. schools. Like we uh, weren't popular. Right, Absolutely, right. it just it it shocks me that uh, writing for the school newspaper would give you a a, an a social boost. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, and it's funny. I was a drama kid too, up through middle school and into high school. And then in about ninth grade, that all flipped because I, you know, was in the school musical and I loved it. Like I loved to sing. I loved choir and everything. Um, but here I was, you know, busting my ass to be, you know, a bit part with one line. And then as soon as I found punk rock and started a band, I went, wait a minute. I could just be center stage the whole time. <laughs> like, I don't have to audition. If it's my band, I can just be in front all the time. And I never went back, really. Like, I still... I still love musical theater. I've actually done a couple of musical theater projects uh, as an adult, Ooh. but you know, really the, the the ego boost of being in the band was all consuming as a teenager. <laughs> Can I? I'm 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 totally curious about yeah the the musical theater projects because obviously you've gone where the writing is, and you know, as someone who's dabbled a little bit in you know writing here and there and and. And every freaking where, uh, you know, you got to suit the medium. So, I like, have you been involved with musical theater, kind of in that writing aspect, or just as a lover of it? No, just um, in a very community theater sense. So, like, for instance, when I was twenty five, the best birthday present I've ever gotten. When I was twenty five, a bunch of my friends surprised me by writing uh, a full length musical about me what? where all the music was <laughs> songs that I'd written, but reinterpreted into different genres and strung together into a musical. And they surprised me with this for my birthday and like got one of my friends who was, you know, a professional actor to play me with all my mannerisms. And it was just, it was bonkers. It was the greatest gift ever. So they, they made a jukebox musical about your, your life your about using your songs with my songs yeah <laughs> no it was hilarious um and so then that was so nice but it also at the same time i went well that looks like a lot of fun so a few years later uh i co-wrote a musical of the same type for another friend where i wrote uh me and my friends got together we wrote all original music about this other friend of ours i you know played him somebody else played me and we just you know spent six months or something putting together this full-length musical for one night for you know just for our own community you know for the 50 people or whoever were in the audience uh and it was just super fun i love that sort of guerrilla art project sort of thing where you know nobody in there was 
a professional. I mean, some some people were had more or less experience, but we were just going for it. I was just going to ask, just as like a, a follow up important question: Would you like to be friends? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just I can't like get a musical, over. Right? I can't get over the fact that you didn't yeah, play right? yourself. <laughs> I just. <laughs> Got me shook. <laughs> the most recent uh, things I did in that regard were um, right before the pandemic hit, I'd spent two summers playing in the orchestra for uh, a theater troupe that all August long, every weekend, they would perform the entirety of a Star Wars movie in the park. And so, you know, it would be all they'd act out using the original scripts and it was all super low budget, like R2-D2 was a girl on roller skates with a slide whistle. Like Amazing. it was hilarious. <laughs> and so uh, I was in the band, so I would play guitar with the rest of the band and we would just play the actual soundtrack, um, just reinterpreted for the instruments we had. And so it was super fun getting to do, you know, rock and roll versions of that soundtrack. Um, so just stuff like that. You know, over the pandemic, we did some music videos and stuff. Like there was one that... Uh, oh my God, your audience is going to be like, why are we listening to this guy's music stuff? But it's so fun. <laughs> no, um, no, I, I, I mean, I'm interested. So who cares what our audience yeah, thinks? <laughs> you, yeah, feel free to cut it all. But like, um, for instance, one of them that's actually on YouTube is uh, some of my friends re from Les Mis uh, to be about the pandemic. And then we all recorded remotely our parts. And so I ended up playing like six different characters from Les Miserables. And that was... You know, that that was kind of a dream because I've always sort of wanted to be in a production of Les Mis. Like that's that's Ooh. definitely a childhood dream. So Jeez. what's the what's the dream role? What's the <laughs> that's the thing? Is like my dream is actually I said this on another show recently, but like my dream was to do a one man show version of Les Mis where I just don't have to pick and I can just be just every be part. everyone one day. Yeah, yeah, I dreamed I mean, a like, dream. <laughs> Yeah, if if this is my fantasy, why not? So like, yeah. So they did. I'll pay when myself. They did this video, yeah, when they did this video, they like originally they were like, "Well, you can be Valjean," and I was like, "Yes." And I was like, "Well, what about? Can I do Marius? Can I do? Can I do Eponine? Like, just give give them all." You know? I and also so, want to be Javert, and I want the song, the confrontation song, to be just me singing back and forth. Yes, yes, one hundred percent. Like, and it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, I want Valjean, but like. I've been singing, you know, stars <laughs> since I was 12. Like, I can't not take that song. So I'm I'm very greedy. Here, watch this. From stars to Starfinder. There's oh, a segue. There um, you go. Oh, there's a segue. <laughs> Back to the stuff anyone actually cares about. <laughs> no, well, it, this kind of brings up a really good point that I wanted to touch on. Is I know that you talked on in another podcast about, you know, following on from when you started learning uh, D&D, which is first edition uh, through uh, middle school, I think you said, which is bonkers yes, in itself yeah. that you learned first edition because that is a wild system and a wild game. Uh, but <laughs> right. you talked about how your teacher then said, go off and create your own TTRPG, like create your own game, which is something that you said oh, you yeah. did start looking into. Do you have any recollection as someone that seems to just delve into like new projects with with all the vim and vigor of a wild child like do you remember the kinds of games and stories that you created in any form considering how long ago oh, yeah. that was for us i mean they were they were all knockoffs of uh you know D because that was the system i knew even when we played other systems like you know we would try to play vampire or whatever but it would still always kind of end up like a D campaign you know we really 
at at 12 or 13 we didn't quite grasp the nuance of like a role-playing heavy game you know that sort of thing but uh no i remember the one that i remember working on with friends was based on the uh brian jack's Redwall books with all the mice and the critters and whatnot oh yeah um, and and it was so it was super fun right because we were 12 uh and so i remember you know everybody working on the rules and the maps and stuff and so yeah but you know i was always coming up with little new things and then abandoning them for something else that was shiny you know so because <laughs> well, and and that seemed to follow on in your i think one of the most bonkers stories i've heard from you is talking about how you would book a music gig before you'd learned how to play your instruments and how you'd like actually had a fully fledged band. It That's seems punk, to, baby. I know. It, it seems to be this idea of just putting yourself in situations where you just have to succeed. Like uh, from from that to um, basically coming up to a job interview and saying, "I'm not qualified for this, but hire me." Yeah, actually, that is that is both true. You know, yeah. I uh, I booked my first my first gig for the band that didn't quite exist. Um, in ninth grade and we put together a band and then, you know, actually somebody dropped out. So I ended up learning to play the, I had been the uh, guitarist and a singer. And then I learned to play the bass two weeks before the gig, um, you know, (laughs) learned in quotes. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, and that was exactly the same spirit that got me in at Paizo. You know, I, it really was just cold calling and chutzpah that got me in the door and it didn't get me, you know, my, I mean, my first job was finding images for the web store at a nickel a JPEG. So it's not like I was suddenly a game designer right off the bat, but I got my foot in the door and I worked my way up through customer service and an internship into becoming an assistant editor on Dungeon Magazine. And from there, it was just learning as fast as I could and then, you know, get to work. So when you, you know, from from journalism to Paizo and that, you know, give me a chance uh, kind of attitude, was it what was the what was the initial draw was it purely that there was an opportunity um you know for yourself as a as a young creative and a and a writer to kind of just just jump in somewhere in that kind of same style as like i will build the tracks in front of me or was it um you know was there any uh, lingering kind of thought about oh i i love role playing games and and i i loved you know world building and and that could be a really cool thing to follow it was it was a little bit both you know i graduated college uh a little bit early i graduated at 20 and i had during college i had loved being a journalist because writing for the the college newspaper and even like the alternative weekly and stuff it was all you know music reviews and like sort of sex drugs and rock and roll right like they would i would go on these gonzo adventures that my editor would come up with and then i would just write about my experience you know it was sort of uh not exactly Hunter S. Thompson, but it, it headed that direction. You know, I got to do a lot of weird stuff. I ended up on Wheel of Fortune by accident, like as one of those stories. You know, there was all sorts of stuff. <laughs> yeah. And then I got out of uh, college and was like, okay, well, I'm a journalist now. And quickly realized that your average suburban newspaper doesn't actually want to pay you to go on write articles yeah. about... Yeah. Yeah, about about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Yeah, hedonistic rides. (laughs) Yeah. And so I got uh, pretty bored with that pretty quick, but I loved the writing of it. I just didn't love the stories that I was getting. And so I was looking around for some sort of uh, magazine that I could work for 
that the subject matter would be a little more interesting to me. And then I discovered that Amazing Stories magazine was based out of Bellevue. And even though that closed down pretty shortly afterward, it was the same company that ran Dungeon and Dragon. And so I was like, oh, well, this this company seems awesome, you know, and I've, of course, loved role playing games from, you know, since childhood. But it had never occurred to me until that moment that you could actually do that as a career. Like it just had not been on my radar at all. So, yeah, once I realized it was an option, I went for it and, you know, got in and did not. I I was not good at it when I started. You know, I did not. I, I always say I spent the first year learning what was cool from all my coworkers. You know, I was working with all these people, you know, Wes Schneider and James Jacobs and just all these, you know, all incredibly talented, creative folks uh, and just trying to absorb as much as I could from them about how to do this job. And, you know, in a lot of cases, they'd only been doing it a couple years longer than I was like they weren't that much older, but you know, they had, they were a step ahead. So I was just learning all I could. And then pretty quickly, you know, I just, uh, any small publisher is all hands on deck at all times. And so I was there and I was willing and had, you know, I could write and I could edit. And so they just sort of threw me into the deep end and I swam as best I could. And then pretty soon we went from working on the Dungeons and Dragons magazines to creating Pathfinder sort of out of necessity and that was really fun. Like get it, at that point, getting to do big swaths of world design was where I really fell in love with the the industry and the job. You know, coming up with new crazy worlds remains remains my favorite part of that whole industry. And so getting to do that early work, I mean, I guess your listeners are probably familiar with Pathfinder stuff to some extent. So getting to do early work on things like you know, designing uh, Kionan, where the elves are, or Belkson with the orcs, or actually doing a lot of early work on Varicia with James Jacobs and really, like, when that was kind of the center of the setting. Uh, and then having certain areas like uh, the city of Karamaga where my I got to just whole cloth create something and my coworkers said, yeah, that's your sandbox. Like, have fun. Um, and so I oftentimes, you know, I worked on a little bit of everything, but I really loved those things those sections where i could take an area of the setting that sort of nobody else cared about and say okay this is going to be my jam i'm going to build it from the ground up and this will just be my little my little pocket right and so stuff like uh you know all the all the fairy stuff like all the first world stuff with the gods the the eldest and whatnot um like that was something that my coworkers were like sure go for it you just do it <laughs> um and Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. 
Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And I didn't. It was, it was super fun. And But where this really becomes a thing for Starfinder is one of those settings, setting sections that I really wanted, being a, also a science fiction nerd, was we knew that Galarian, the Pathfinder you know, planet, uh, we knew it was just one planet in a solar system. And there was a little bit written about a couple of other planets, but I pitched to the rest of the team and said, hey, can I just develop the solar system and give us sort of an outer space setting to, you know, as an ad- adjacent thing to Pathfinder? And everybody went, yeah, sure, why not? So I got to just sort of whole cloth come up with most of the solar system. Um And people really liked it. And then that book, which was called Distant Worlds, uh, became quite popular with the fan base. And so then, you know, many people had had the idea of what if we did a science fiction, science fantasy version of Pathfinder as either a source book or a whole different game. But when the time came to actually make a new game, uh, it was a pretty easy sell for folks to want to set it in that solar system that I developed. And so that work became the basis of the Pact Worlds for Starfinder. And also was a big reason why I ended up getting the nod to be the first creative director, just because a lot of the setting work was coming out of work that I'd already started. What's well, kind of interesting is, so when we talk about Paizo and your um, uh, introduction into Paizo, at that point, because you started in 2004, and Paizo had only been, as you as you said, it had been around for a couple of years, because Paizo's only now just over 20 years old. And at that yeah. point, obviously, they were purely doing Dungeon Magazine. So, for those that aren't aware, uh, Paizo had taken over a, a contract from uh, Dungeons & Dragons. So, you were working with what I believe was 3.5 at that point in terms of the stories yeah. you were telling in the magazine. So, that's where you came into it. And when that contract ended in 2007, because it was a five-year lease at the time that Paizo was working on it, obviously, then, as you said, you're a small publishing company. You're looking at what's next? Where's the shift? So, can you talk about how, what it was like for you uh, in Paizo when you're kind of making the shift between, okay, we can't just do this thing now. What if we do what we have been talking about for a while and actually develop a role-playing game? And then going from that to having something that is actually successful on its own merit and kind of the, the culture and the vibe and just what that process was like shifting gears as a company. I mean, to be honest, I thought I might end up in grad school. Like, you know, I was thinking, like, here I'm 23 or whatever. It's like, it's not too late to go back if this all falls apart. It's um, never too late. Yeah, well, because that had actually been my plan when I got out of college. Uh, you know, I had thought I was going to go straight into a master's in English and creative writing. And one of the the teacher in charge or the professor in charge of the program had said, you're 20. You don't have anything to write about yet. Like, you <laughs> no, we're not going to let you into our master's program. Um, and so she made me agree to go spend one year doing something else 
uh, and then I could reply. And I said, fine, I'll take one year. And in that one year, I fell into writing professionally and was suddenly like, oh, why would I, why would I pay money to do this? <laughs> why yeah. would I ever Somebody else is back? paying me to do this. <laughs> but, um, but no, but like we, when the magazines went away, uh, it was a terrifying time because Paizo had not been doing great. Like the magazines were doing fantastic. And I think the work we were doing was stellar, but there had been a couple other magazines like Amazing Stories and Undefeated that had died right as I was getting hired. So like half the company had been laid off right when I showed up, um, which was a little bit weird to come in there and be like, hi, hi. And I'm sitting in just like this empty wasteland of desks <laughs> that used to be occupied by people's friends. It's like, oh, gee. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, so we we came in there. The magazines went away and we were all like, well, we don't know what else to do. So we're just going to keep making adventures because that's the thing we know how to do. And specifically adventure paths, which we'd started in uh, the magazines and which didn't really exist so much in the industry at that time. Yeah. The idea of here's a bunch of ranked adventures. And so we said, okay, this is our niche. This is the thing we'll do. So I was working on Pathfinder Adventure Path you know, and all the other standalone modules and stuff but we said okay we'll build a world and we'll build adventures to go in it um but we'll still we'll stay 3.5 because obviously everybody's doing stuff compatible with 3.5 yeah um and so we did that for god i don't remember maybe it was only a year something like that uh and we we got stable and we said okay this is viable like we the audience had been quite upset about the magazine's you know, going away. And then they, you know, they didn't really go away. They also went back in house, but like, as far as we were concerned, they were going away and they stopped being in print. So a lot of the fan base stuck with us and gave us a shot. And suddenly overnight we went from, you know, sort of the, uh, an, an attachment to wizards of the coast to being a competitor. Uh, and so we, we all went, Oh, like there's a viable career here. That's great. And then when fourth edition came out, the contracts around fourth edition were not going to make our business model very easy. Like there were just too many poison pills in there where people were looking at that and going, this could kill our whole company. Like if we go fourth edition, we're like never allowed to go back, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, so it was yeah, just yeah. too risky. And also there was a lot of people who were upset about fourth edition and some changes that were made stylistically. Um, and that, you know, that was part of it. But ultimately, I think had the contracts been more favorable, probably we would have gone fourth edition because that was the conventional wisdom at the time. But instead, you know, uh, Paizo's management made the bold choice to say, OK, we're going to take 3.5. We're going to update it and make the changes we want to see. And we're going to call it Pathfinder. And it'll be something that we can just own, you know, to some extent uh, and use forever. And so we did it and it worked and suddenly we became the, you know, the second biggest tabletop game in the industry. And it really gave us a lot of freedom to just go nuts and put out a ton of content, really build out the world, do a bunch of things like, you know, the novel line. I, I loved the chance to work on the novel line because I'd been early on, my coworkers had kind of uh, decided, oh, well, James, you know, I had a couple of short stories that I'd sold by the time I started working at Paizo, but that was more fiction experience than a lot of people there had. And so they went, okay, well, James is the fiction guy. You'll be in charge of doing, you know, we had serialized fiction, fiction in the back of, uh, the adventure path. 
Um, and they said, okay, well, you you do that. So from about issue number two or three onward, I was in charge of that. And then that rolled into novels when we started doing those. And it was just a joy to be working in fiction publishing, but in this world that I was also working on. Because I never... There were very few times at Paizo when I had one clearly defined job. You know, like oftentimes I would have a title, but it's like, you know, maybe I was an editor, but I'd be developing stuff. Or maybe I was a developer and I'd be editing stuff. And so, right, I was the executive editor of Pathfinder Tales, even as I was the creative director on Starfinder. Like those overlapped. So there was always... And I was, you know, at various points, I was managing a bunch of people, either as sort of one of the head editors or as the creative director. Um, So there was kind of always a lot of balls in the air, (laughs) but it was really a lot of it was really fun. Like and the community of fans was so enthusiastic that it was just wonderful to create for that world. I've heard you refer to yourself like several times in various interviews as, as the story guy in a, in a crunchy setting. And, and, Mm. you know, we've played Starfinder and, and having run various different systems, it it is definitely on the crunchy side, which, you know, allows people really to get into that kind of tactical mindset. Um, When you're writing, because obviously you're, you're, you know, you're, one of your main strengths is, is world building and you run classes on it now. Uh, but how do you factor in the the system element? Is that is that in the back of your mind? Is that a kind of collaborative thing? Or is it more, I do story, you do system, we kind of come together? How does that kind of all work? No, no, you don't. I, I don't think you ever at Paizo had the freedom to just be one or the other. <laughs> right. like you, needed, you needed to be able to do all of it. It just wasn't that big of a ship, especially in the beginning. Like, you know, you had to cross train. Um, but that said, I think it's, you know, my heart has always been with the story and the world building. Uh, and I'm sort of by default, more of a rules light guy, you know, much to the church chagrin of you know the design team and the various designers I've worked with um but like I can write rules and I certainly have written more than my share of spells and subsystems and abilities and archetypes and all those things over the years it's just not what I love and so for me usually it's I'm trying to find something cool in the world uh that then I can represent with the rules, you know, and like, for instance, um, I'd say one of the crunchy parts that I enjoy the most is monster design. You know, I've done a ton of creature design over the years for both games. But for me, that's always about, you know, thinking about the the role of the creature, both, you know, tactically, what would be fun, but just as often, what would be interesting from like a National Geographic sort of sense, you know, I like to think about how does this work? How does this monster fit into its world? How has evolutionary pressures shaped it? Um, and just what makes it what makes it different, you know? And so I always make sure that my creatures have a thing, you know, what a role that they are filling. Mm. Um, and so, like, that's really fun. But yeah, no, I'm I'm a story guy, but especially as a creative director, you know, you got to build the framework of the entire game, and so. Like we had, while there was sort of a core Starfinder team, really the entire company 
was working on the game. You know, you had the whole design team that was doing a lot of the really crunchy building of the classes and whatnot. And then, you know, I was kind of leading a development team that was more focused on the world and the feel of the game and like gameplay and things like that. Um, and the job of the creative director was to bring it all together and, you know, break up fights and make sure you were getting <laughs> the best ideas out of everybody Ooh. and really trying to, you know, uh, sort of just facilitate the creation of the best game possible. You know, because I think something people don't realize about creative directing uh, and I was saying this even at the time is people think you're the creative director, you have all the control. But I think being a good creative director actually means giving up a lot of control. Yeah. Because not only are you beholden to whoever owns the company, because ultimately they want a thing from the game and they say yes or no. Yeah, yeah. they're going to be the bottom but line. <laughs> also, yeah, but but also if you're a creative director, you need to be doing everything you can to support your staff so that, you know, the more you can say yes to the good ideas, the easier it'll be for everybody when you have to say no to an idea. Yeah. And so really trying to just like help people shine and make sure that it's not, if you try to just make it your vision, I mean, if you're doing a, a one person game, you know, a, an indie game or something, like maybe you can do it all yourself and that's fine. But when you're working on a team, you know, you're managing people as much as the project. And that was a thing that I always really loved. Like I really valued that those relationships and that ability to, you know, get something from the group that was better than any of us could have created on our own, you know? And, and I learned that really early, you know, from working with so many brilliant designers that came through Paizo, uh, you know, I, I would have been foolish to try and do anything all myself. So kind of speaking on your, your role as creative director and just those early uh, uh, developing stages of Starfinder and tying this into one of the ways, uh, one of the things that excite you about writing. I know you've talked about how one of the things that really gets you going the most and you really try to focus on is the questions, right? So it's not what is explicitly yes. stated, it is, it is what is implied or what is left vague or open deliberately so. And obviously we look at one of the fundamental uh, law questions of Starfinder, which is the implementing of the gap and kind of what that means. Yes. How, how early did that come in the process and uh, how kind of uh, strictly did you adhere to this idea of we will probably or may never answer this and that is deliberately so a so that i know you're able to fluctuate between pathfinder and starfinder because you're still doing those games simultaneously but as you've kind of stated before it leaves room for the players to take ownership of their game and tell the stories that and if they want to answer it they can was that a very early conceit for the game and an early kind of hinging yes. point for starfinder yeah, that was a really crucial thing that we had to figure out in sort of the early meetings because for two real reasons. One of them, of course, was we're doing a game that's effectively, you know, we, we thought about, you know, Warhammer and Warhammer 40K and the relationship between those two games. And it's how Pathfinder and Starfinder have a similar sort of relationship where it's the same universe just advanced an unknown amount of time into the future. And we knew that we wanted Pathfinder to remain a living game so people couldn't have the ability to just go on space Wikipedia and find out how the Pathfinder <laughs> adventure path they're playing ended. Yeah. Right. Like you don't, you don't <laughs> want that. Um, and so we knew we needed some mystery there and that was, the gap was one way to keep anything from the Pathfinder, uh, keep current Pathfinder events 
a mystery. Um, but the other thing that it really did was it solved a problem that we had sort of slowly realized over the years with Pathfinder, which isn't a huge problem, but with Pathfinder, we wanted the world to feel really old and mysterious. You know, with with fantasy gaming, it's so much fun to be going through ancient ruins and, you know, lost cities and all these relics of the past. And so, you know, Pathfinder had 10,000 years of of history already built. But the problem with that is if you spend a bunch of time putting really cool ideas in the past, it means that players can't play with those ideas. They can't experience them firsthand because they already happened. And occasionally, you know, you can do time travel and go back to, you know, Earthfall or whatever. But you really, you're using up a lot of your best stuff uh, as a footnote that players aren't going to interact with. Mm. And so we made a very deliberate choice in Starfinder to say, we're going to make sure that this is the start of history. There's not everything cool that we have, we're going to make accessible. So it's not going to be in the past more than, you know, a hundred years. It's going to be all about what's coming, what's forward, what's out there. And that also coincides with, we wanted uh, faster than light travel via the drift to be relatively new to the setting because we wanted that feeling of the land rush, the, you know, the Mm. new worlds, the sort of you know, for better and worse, manifest destiny. And obviously there are a whole lot of problems with that, but, uh, you know, conflict in a setting is good. So, you know, his it <laughs> rather is a useful tool. So, you know, I would rather have the, all of that in there. And so we really created this sense of, of possibility that is hard to get when everything's been really meticulously detailed and everybody's already been everywhere. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. In terms of, because we've got Pathfinder and, you know, you you were saying, I really want to do something sci-fi. I really want to kind of involve sci-fi. Uh, is there a kind of thematic through line from Pathfinder to Starfinder? We've got fantasy and then we've got kind of sci-fi oh, fantasy. Yeah. You know, you talk about possibility, adventure, but, you know, is there is there kind of like a nice thematic thing that links both of them? And what would you say is probably more unique to Starfinder as a setting? I mean, the science fiction, to be fair, the science fiction elements have been in Pathfinder since the very beginning. Mm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I will never forget. Uh, so originally on Pathfinder Adventure Path, uh, there's a point where the main folks working on it were uh, me, James Jacobs and Wes Schneider. Uh, and I remember for issue number three, 
of Pathfinder Adventure Path, I'd written up this gazetteer of Versia, like our our core setting. It was going to be sort of the one of the roots of the new Pathfinder setting. And they said, here you go. Here's the map. Jacobs had sketched out a couple of places, but said, just go nuts. Put a bunch of stuff in here. <laughs> and so I did. Um, and they, they sat me down and were like, OK, so this is good. We like a lot of this. You cannot put a space elevator in the middle of our classic <laughs> fantasy setting. Why not? <laughs> and, yeah, exactly. And so there was, I was trying to do stuff like that from the beginning. And of course, you know, later on, we did put a bunch of that in there. You know, I've got, <laughs> there's, there's a, you know, busted uh, particle accelerator style, like a uh, space launcher in Kyonan. And like, of course there's Numeria with the crash spaceship. Mm. So like there's plenty of science fiction that ended up in Pathfinder. But Starfinder was really a chance for us to just turn that knob up to 11 and really say, let's get all the science fiction stuff we want in here, along with the fantasy. And the ability to kind of, when we made Pathfinder, we did a thing that everybody said was stupid at the time, which was <laughs> we tried to be everything to everyone. Mm. Um, you know, the, the conventional wisdom with campaign settings that time was you need something that's really strongly themed because if you try to spread yourself too thin, you're going to end up with a very generic setting. And so what we did with Pathfinder was we tried to say, okay, well, we'll just make every country kind of its own setting, right? So if you like Ravenloft style, Gothic stuff, you'll go to Ustalov. And if you want Guns in your fantasy, you go to Alkenstar. But if you don't want guns, you go literally anywhere else. You know? <laughs> and so uh, we were able to sort of put every setting we wanted into Pathfinder, which meant that you could play a wide variety of fantasy games. And so when we did Starfinder, especially knowing that we had all these different planets, we said, well, maybe Starfinder can do the same thing and accommodate all these different types of science fiction and fantasy. So we can have the Star Wars space opera, but we can also have the Event Horizon-style deep space horror or Alien or Star Trek. You know, we can have all of these different flavors. And I think that that worked pretty well. I think we built a game system that ultimately could be uh, turned toward many different types of stories. And I think that's part of what keeps it fresh. Mm. But, I mean, in terms of through lines, like, there's a lot of them. But the most fun part or one of the most fun parts of creating the setting for this game was figuring out which Pathfinder elements would come forward and what would change. Like, what do, you know, as soon as we said, like, Hell Knight spaceships, we all went, yeah. oh, my God, that's so cool. Like, that's going to be so rad. You know, and figuring out, like, which gods we'd bring forward and which little Easter eggs or, like, little elements from the past would have grown into big things and which big things would have disappeared. We're at an interesting point where I think uh, one of our fan questions, our list of questions can kind of uh, come in here. So we've, we kind of opened it up to our Roll to Cast Discord and a little plug Great. here, if you happen to be on our uh, Discord and, and you're, a, you're, a, you're an active member of our community, well, this is where you can ask questions and we will read them out on the recording as we're about to do now. Uh, so this uh, first question, James, uh, all these are going to be for you, spoiler, um, is from... <laughs> Jason Elias. Um, and I'll put both of them here because they kind of link together. Uh, number one, what's a favorite bit of in-world lore that makes Starfinder stand out as a setting? And number two, what's a favorite mechanic that makes Starfinder stand out as a game? Ooh, okay. <laughs> Let's think. Yeah, our listeners don't, don't fuck children. about. <laughs> yeah, um, 
God, what do I love? You know, I think one of the bits of lore that I really love is the Sheeran as, yes. as a species. Um, and the reason I love them, so anybody who's listening, I mean, anybody who's listening probably knows Starfinder, but the fact that they're this would hope insect so. <laughs> race that broke away from the hive mind and like writing, writing up the entries for the new, the entirely new creature types or the, the new, you know, playable species in the core rule book was one of the most fun elements because I had this opportunity to just every line any little throwaway thing you put in there can turn into something big. And so like, I just sort of dashed off the, the idea that, well, they've broken away from a hive mind. So like freedom of choice is new to them. And they, as a result, like they really prize it. And so they've got this, you know, they're sort of communal by nature, but also have this fierce dedication to individual choice and Liberty. And once I realized that they, also still have the, you know, the organs in their head that the, the hive used to control them, that they can still manipulate those themselves and essentially get high off of making their own choices. Yes. <laughs> That's just such a fascinating cultural element to me where I still, you know, every time I think about that, I, I just imagine them, you know, sitting at a restaurant, looking at the menu and being like, oh, I don't need to order anything. Like the fact that I have a menu, (laughs) I am tripping balls just from the fact that you have like a drink menu here. I'm getting Um, so high off the menu. (laughs) Yeah. And that's just, it's an idea that I have never seen before and I'm really proud of it. Um, But that's, you know, just one of a million tiny details. Um, So I think that's probably for the lore from the mechanics side, mm. um, and as we've established, I am not as much of a mechanics <laughs> yes. person. Um, so I thought this would be I a fascinating w- question because yeah. I know you said you had to also be a bit of a jack of all trades, and so you would also yeah. train a bit in that section. And so I think the most interesting thing mechanically, um, I think there's a couple. Uh, so I'd pick your poison. I think um, the Starship Combat game, uh, like sort of mini game within the game that. Uh, was primarily a Jason Bullman joint. Like, you know, a lot of people worked on it, but I think he really crafted it to begin with. Uh, I think that's really cool. And I think it's a really fun thing to bring into a tabletop role-playing game where you suddenly, you know, for a minute, you get to pop out of character and into this little tactical war game. I think that's neat. But I also think that the, um, oh God, the way we did the Solarians, I think they have a really interesting mechanic with their sort of attunement. And we, they were sort of the thing where it's like, well, we don't have Jedi in this world, but like people are going to want to play a Jedi. <laughs> so how do you do a Jedi? That's not a Jedi. Like, how do you come up with a shtick that still allows you to have force pulls and energy weapons, but fundamentally feels very different and unique. And I think the teams really did a good job with it. I think that they, the idea of these sort of stellar attunements and like they are people related to stars and it's all very star themed. It's just a cool way to do it. And I think that the mechanic of which way you want to attune yourself uh, is something that I hadn't really seen before. And so I'm going to say that's pretty original. A second question here from Giorgio. Giorgio. <laughs> there we go. What mechanic of the yeah. game has been the trickiest to come up uh, come up with and why? Also, uh, was there a particular challenge adopting the Pathfinder chore 
Chore? Yeah, Pathfinder. Law, I assume. Law, yes. Pathfinder <laughs> law to a space opera setting. And how did uh, you and the team find a way around it? So the first is around uh, game mechanics and what was hard to uh, put in. And the second is about um, adapting from Pathfinder to Starfinder. Oh, I mean, there were a lot of difficult mechanical challenges. Like it was, it was pretty tough. I know one that was hard fought uh, between all the teams and within all the teams was sort of the economy and how to work, you know, does... Does damage tie to the character or tie to the weapon? You know, do you need to buy new guns at every level or do you get to have the same gun, you know, your whole life like Han Solo? Mm. You know, and so that was one that really people had strong opinions and it got contentious. Um, but, you know, it, it worked out and I think people ultimately uh, ended up pretty happy with it. But actually the one that came the closest to disaster that I think I can talk about now <laughs> was actually the most basic and it was character generation. It was oh. literally it was stats and attributes, you know, the first little bit of the book um, because we had originally a more complicated system that was, you know, to, to the designer's credit, it was more mathematically elegant, but it was just a little bit harder to learn. Mm. Um, and so we all kind of went, well, I mean, it's, it's fiddly, but, you know, there's there's an elegance here. So, like, let's roll with it. And then maybe a week before the book went to print, uh, somebody, I think it might have been uh, Amanda Hammond, uh, who was on the team, was like, you know, let's let's just do one more test of this. I'm going to take this up and give it to the customer service team and see what they think. And they did a character generation play test and came back and were just like, they hate it. Oh, like it was no. so it was so hard. Like people were, you know, spent getting really frustrated. That and is we went close to the wire. Oh shit. <laughs> and this is this is the system that literally everything is based on. Yeah. So we had, you know, a crash meeting, you know, we're closing the doors in the office and you know, pulling in designers and saying, like, we have to redo how statistics are done and we need to do it now. Now. And so <laughs> we talked it over, and I think um I think ultimately, uh, maybe Stephen Radley McFarlane, one of the designers, uh, had the solution that is the current, you know, the current version that you see in the book. And so it was one of those things where we all could kind of agree on that. And so I told him, okay, explain it to me. Explain it to me again. <laughs> Great. And then I went in my office and closed the door and just wrote that chapter. Uh, and then it went to editing and it went in the book and went to print. So it was really just like that was... That was so close to the wire. That's, um, <laughs> and, that's harrowing. And, and to be clear, everything about this book was harrowing because the timelines, <laughs> like you think about the size, the size of this book and the size of this game. Um, there was one year, exactly one year between when we had the meeting where Eric Mona, the publisher said, we're going to do a science fantasy game. And when the book went to print, Jesus. that was the time we had was one year to design a game from scratch and then make the book about it. Oh. Um, <laughs> and at the time, actually, a number of people in the meeting were like, I don't think this is possible. Like, we just <laughs> cannot do this. It's yeah. not viable. Um, and the way I remember it, and this may be totally wrong. So apologies to anybody who was there. No, it's kind of. But the way I remember <laughs> it is we kind of went home over the, you know, it was like a Friday and Eric was like, okay, everybody think about it over the weekend. Um, you know, I thought really hard about it and went into his office on Monday and was like, okay, Eric, I think this game can be done, but like put me in charge. 
Like if you give me this game, I will, I will make it happen in one year. Um, and he said, all right, you are now, cause that the job hadn't existed before, but he was like, you are now a creative director. It's your problem. Go. Wow. And so <laughs> that was, that was how I became creative director. Um, and so from there it was just a wild ride because we had so many requirements, you know, this game needed to be as, as customizable and robust as Pathfinder, but it needed to be easier to learn than Pathfinder. You know, the book needed to have setting material, not just rules. It needed to have starship combat. It needed to have rules for uh, converting Pathfinder stuff to Starfinder. So we just needed to have all this extra stuff that the Pathfinder core rulebook didn't have. And it had to be more visually appealing and it needed to be shorter. Mm-hmm. It needed to be. And so like we had like a thousand pages of content that we had to fit into this book that had to be half that size. And so, so much of my, so much of my job that year was just taking everybody's great ideas and condensing them down as much as humanly possible and saying like, okay, this is a 10 page system. We have two pages. Let's do it. You know, that oh. kind of thing. Right. <laughs> Amazing. Um, so it was, it was a, uh, you know, it was euphoric and it was also a death march, like at the same time, um, which is one of the reasons why, you know, so the spoiler for anybody who doesn't know, um, the way it all went down is like we made this game, we got it out, you know, it had wild success. That first Gen Con was amazing. You know, I remember just seeing people lined up, you know, all around the convention center to try and get a copy of this book. And, you know, me and the team were just you know, walking down the line, signing autographs, feeling like <laughs> rock stars, you know? Um, and it was, it was just the greatest feeling. Like it was the high point of my entire gaming career. Mm. And so we came back after that Gen Con. And I think a week later, I you know, took Eric into a conference room and said, Hey, I'm resigning. Like I'm quitting. <laughs> I'm leaving the game industry. And wow. he sort of went slave on a high note. Nobody, yeah, nobody expected it. But I really, having gone through that, I really on the plane home was like, "This is as good as it gets." Mm. Like I have hit this height. Why not pull a Calvin and Hobbes and just like ride my wagon off into the sunset yeah. while, while I'm at this peak? You know, because um, I'd always wanted to be, you know, a novelist, and I had, you know, published two novels at that point, but. I I knew that it, working a day job, especially a day job as demanding as the creative direction, was causing me to say no to a lot of mm. writing projects. Yeah. You know, there was a lot of even on Starfinder, like there were a lot of sections of the core rulebook or the you know various other uh, early books in the game's history that I would have loved to write myself as a freelancer, but I couldn't because I didn't have the time. And so between that and wanting to work on my personal projects, I just felt like it was time I'd, I'd spent 13 years in the game industry and I'd done what I came to do. And I was, I was out. Um, (laughs) and so I did, I left the company, uh, very shortly after the game's launch and have continued over the years to write freelance for stuff, right? Like we mentioned, um, I'm currently the writer for the new Starfinder comic series, which launches in June and uh, it comes out both, you know, as floppies uh, bi-monthly and then also uh, you can get in on the Kickstarter for the hardcover collection right now. Um, but, you know, so I still do stuff like that. I still have written adventures for them. I wrote the Starfinder Alexa game for Amazon, which was a single player voice 
uh, RPG, which was kind of, I think, sort of one of the first of its kind and was really fun to do because I was just I was the sole writer on that game. And so they just said, you know, here's a team of coders. uh, (laughs) Go for it. And we got like, you know, Nathan Fillion and Laura Bailey to do voices like it was wild. But so, yes, I've still been like Starfinder remains very close to my heart, but that was how I left, and I have totally forgotten what que- the original question uh, it, it was the, the mechanic that was uh, the trickiest to come with and, and challenges adapting Pathfinder lore to space yeah. to a space opera setting. Which you got into, Which, yeah. Yeah, we kind of talked about yeah, it. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, and like I think a lot of the lore things that were fun were stuff like, you know, the Hell Knights were the one that I think got me most excited, or like, uh, you know, calling that space station uh, Absalom Station you know, and having that be sort of the center of it, just like that little nod to the past uh, was super fun. And yeah, I mean, the the gods and stuff, like having the machine god Triune be parts of various, you know, it's three gods that had all existed in Pathfinder in various ways. Um, and so it just, like, we, there were lots of little Easter eggs that we brought forward. Um, for me, For me, the most fun parts were usually stuff that, had been in distant worlds where it had been sort of fringe setting elements that I had gotten to write there. Stuff like the, uh, the sky, the dragon riders, the Skyfire legion that I then got to pull forward and go, okay, well, instead of riding dragons, now they are a legion of, uh, of pilots, fighter pilots. And so you've got, you know, these two person fighters that are (laughs) one dragon, you know, the dragon is the gunner, Yeah, you know, and just like that. (laughs) That's sort of goofy, but sort of awesome. I'm just yeah. imagining someone using a lever to like rotate the dragon's neck, just like right, like like I just feel like uh, a little bit goofy, but also awesome is very much my brand. Yes. That's punk. <laughs> so you've 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 touched on where you headed after Starfight, and and now you're writing full time, and we're we're looking into June. Uh, which is where we are for you listing people from which the future. Which is the month and not the Frank Herbert sci-fi yes. novel. <laughs> and you have you have two large projects on the horizon, one of which being, uh, which is the more uh, recent one that will be coming out is Dark Hearts, which will be a young adult yes. novel. And I thought this might be a good opportunity to chat about not only Dark Hearts novel, but just kind of your uh, foray into writing and now betting on yourself, uh, especially coming through a period where you essentially left Paizo and then the pandemic hit a couple of years later. Yeah. So I'd love to talk about that process and what has led you now to uh, create uh, this book that will be coming out in oh, two weeks, two, three weeks yeah. now. Yeah. Yeah, it's real close. So <laughs> Dark Hearts is a, uh, it's a queer young adult romance novel, um, contemporary set in Seattle, and it's all about falling in love with the boy who stole your chance at becoming a rock star. <gasps> So it draws, you know, very heavily on my own experiences as, you know, a young musician in Seattle, as, uh, you know, a young queer guy in Seattle. Um, And so the story is all about the main character who created a band with his best friends in middle school. And then egos got too big and he stormed out. And then the band got huge without him. So they're all famous. (laughs) And he's stuck, you know, just like trying not to fail social studies, right? And so the story is all about him getting thrown back into contact with the lead singer, who's, you know, sort of his frenemy. And then slowly remembering why they were such good friends, but also realizing that maybe there's a romance element there. Um, And then as their relationship develops in secret, 
he starts to think, oh, maybe this is actually my chance to get back in the band and get the fame that I've been denied. But of course, uh, yeah, anytime you start thinking like, oh, well, I can use my romantic partner for my own ends. Like that's not going to go well. (laughs) So, and it's a very, it's a very funny book. You know, it was, it's very lighthearted. There's, you know, it's teenage boys. So while it is a romance, it's also got plenty of, you know, teenage boys doing teenage boy things, you know, uh, plenty of dick jokes to go around. Yeah. Um, yeah. As never being a teenage boy, I was like, like what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, it's one of the things I feel like, and I've said this before, but I feel like sometimes, uh, when you're reading teen romance, uh, the guys especially can come out really sanitized. Mm. Uh, and so I wanted to write a book where like, yeah, you love these guys. Like, you know, he is the love interest. You want to feel it, but also, they're 17, you know, so they're, they're sweaty and vulgar and horny. And yeah, I, I remember being the worst. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I'm glad we all agree. Teenage boys are feral. <laughs> yes. Yes. And so I wanted to show that and have it still be a romance, you know. Um, so that was really fun. And uh, yeah, so that comes out all over the world uh, in June. Where can we access that? Is it is it uh, physical and online or uh, what are everywhere. the avenues? Yes. Everywhere. So everywhere. Everywhere. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, so I've got, uh, in, the, in Australia, that's hit from my UK publisher who controls all sort of the uh, world, you know, English rights kind of thing. So uh, that's Anderson Press. But yeah, there's an ebook version. Uh, you know, there's... It'll be in bookstores. There's a great audiobook version. Um, so yeah, you can get it anywhere. Um, and it's actually translated into a bunch of different languages too. So I Amazing. think there's half a dozen different translations um so far. So this is kind of my big uh my big step into you know traditional publishing in some ways, you know, in that it's my own fully creator owned thing and it's with uh, you know, my publisher Wednesday is part of Macmillan. So it's with one of the big five publishers. And so this is really me trying to step up onto that main stage in a different genre. Uh, and it's been a really interesting experience, but yeah, like you said, it's been five, five plus years since I left Paizo. Yeah, 2017. So just coming up on six. Yeah. Almost, it's yeah. Been, it's, it was not as smooth a ride as I thought it would be. Um, so, and part of that is, uh, like not to, not to bring it down, but, um, so about a month after I quit to write full time, you know, I, I quit and I was like, I'm gonna have this great writing schedule and I'll like write in the mornings and then like ride my bike and then hang out with people. And, uh, that went for like a month and it went smashingly. Um, and then my wife, who's been chronically ill for a long time, got much worse and had to quit her job and mm. uh, like suddenly couldn't do a lot of things. And so I basically became a caregiver almost immediately. And then uh, so for the last five years, she's been mostly stuck in bed. And so I'm, you know, part time writer and part time house husband, you yeah. know, and yeah. so. So that that definitely was not a thing either of us expected. And then, of course, the pandemic on top of that was just like, oh, my God, can we catch a break? Absolutely. Yeah. But that's a large part of actually why I wrote this book is because I was still for the uh, for those years between when I left in the pandemic, I was still trying to write science fiction and fantasy. And I did, you know, I got some nice short stories published, like in places like Nightmare or the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. So like big bucket list items. But I I hadn't succeeded in selling like a 
a big, you know, fantasy or science fiction novel. I got very close, but it just hadn't worked out. Um, and so when the pandemic hit, I was just burnt out on this big dystopian thing I'd been writing. And so I just I'd been reading a lot of young adult uh, romance as a way to sort of cheer myself up. And it was so much fun. Like there was so much <laughs> vibrancy and like the voice and the characters. And it was just it was funny. And so I decided to try my hand at it and discovered that it actually came really naturally to me because it's much closer to, you know, I I love writing science fiction fantasy and I think I do a pretty good job. But my voice when I write that stuff, if you read my Pathfinder novels, that's sort of like a very authorial voice. Whereas writing young adult contemporary romance, it's just kind of me talking, you know, like the, <laughs> the characters talk like me and that's so fun and freeing and I can make pop culture jokes and I can just, you know, get silly and get bonkers. And that was really refreshing. And I wrote the book faster than uh, anything else I've written. And then uh, you know, there was a, a while where I had to go on an agent search because my agent at the time only represented uh, science fiction and fantasy. Mm. So I had to go find a new agent. And that was seven grueling months. Uh, but after that, like once I found the right agent, you know, he signed me and a couple weeks later sold the book. So it really went from zero to 100 very quickly. You talk about the the freedom and and uh, working on this this novel uh, it it seems to be kind of the not the the theme of your career, but that you know, uh, working as a jack of all trades and kind of a, a raconteur, um, you know, so early it, it there's there's this wonderful rush that comes from being able to kind of get your fingers into a, a new genre, a new thing, and um, yeah, you know, coming from Starfinder, which is obviously an, an amazing uh, creative um, ambition and endeavor and, and hugely collaborative, but, you know, collaboration means working with people and managing them, as you know, and as well, like you, right. you talk about a whole lot of restrictions that, you know, you have to then kind of pair with. What Like, was that where this kind of rush and freedom came from, or just working on something for yourself when the only person to say no is is you? <laughs> I mean, that's that's definitely partially true. And of course, you know, even with a creator-owned novel, you still have agents and editors. So there's still people that can call you on your bullshit, you know. <laughs> like, but uh, and rightfully but least, so. You know, sometimes the idea, <laughs> the idea is that you're in charge. Um, yeah. Whether or not that totally bears out, I like but to I think, think I am. <laughs> yeah, and like I love collaborating, and I enjoy a lot of that. Like I really did like working on a team. But I think to be a little bit brass tacks about things for a minute, like one of the things about working in the game industry is unless you own the company, you don't own any of the stuff that you've created. Um, and that is was sort of fine at the start where I was, you know, getting in, I was learning things and I owe so much to Paizo. I learned so much of that job. I got to build up my skills and like get my name out there and do so much there. But at the end of the day, you start looking around and going, well, this stuff, I don't, I don't own any of this. I don't get, mm. not only do I not get to make the final say, but like when I walked away, like it was all close to me. And now like, I don't get to play in that sandbox unless I get specifically approved by somebody else who may, may not, you know, who is the current caretaker of the game. Right. And it's, it's bonkers how quickly, uh, you know, suddenly the thing that you worked on is owned by people who 
maybe didn't even know the game existed when you yeah. created it, yeah. you know, like that sort of thing. And that doesn't mean that's no shade on them. Like, I think it's awesome that Paizo especially and all these game companies, you know, they get new blood and new life because I think you need that. But there did come a point where I started saying like, I've put all of this energy into stuff that I don't have control over, right? Like, for instance, my novels, uh, Death's Heretic and The Redemption Engine, which were my Pathfinder novels, for a while there, they were out of print. And there's, and they're still out of print physically. And like, there's nothing I can do about that. Yeah. Like, I don't own anything about it. Same with, you know, Pathfinder, Starfinder, like, those things would be mega hits. And like, yeah, I had a job, but I didn't get royalties on any of that. Right, you know, people think, yeah. you know, you're the creative director on Starfinder and Starfinder is a big hit. And so they assume that like, well, you're rich now, right? And it's like, <laughs> no, dude, like I get the same, I got the same salary I, you know, had before, which uh, in Seattle is, was not particularly impressive, yes. yeah. right? you know, compared to most other jobs. And that's true of most of the game industry. Like you're lucky if you're making minimum wage in the mm. game industry. Um, and so, yeah, I think there was, and I've talked to a number of other game people about this too, where you just come to a point where you say like, I've gotten all I'm going to get out of this. And now I'm kind of just giving my effort to somebody else and, you know, and being compensated for it. Like there's nothing wrong with a job in the game industry, but I think it can really mess with your psyche if you don't have something that's yours that you can build sort of and retain. And so like one of the reasons, one of the ways I think I was able to be a good employee while I was at Paizo is that I always had something on the side that was just for me. Mm. Like in the yeah. early years, uh, you know, I was still gigging with uh, a metal band for the first few years that I was at Paizo. And that made it really easy to, you know, if I lost a creative fight at work or, you know, something didn't go my way, I would go, well, that's, work that's fine but here i've got this other thing that is just mine that i can build however i see fit you know uh and later that was novels or other projects like that um and i think that's really important because the people who go all in on a game that they don't own can end up really messing themselves up psychologically because it's not theirs you know and they'll start feeling like it's theirs but it's really not. And you've mm. got to be able to keep that distance and step away and say, you know, like, for instance, like Starfinder, I poured so much love into that game. I have zero say where the game goes now because it's not it's not mine. Um, and like I I love some of the stuff that people have done with it. Like, that's I think it's awesome where that the game has continued to go and thrive. And but it's not mine. And I think if I didn't have this other stuff, that would be crushing. And I yeah. know the, uh, the and as we're kind of like drawing the interview slowly to a close, we, we talk about the second project that you have on the horizon, which is you're actually diving back into Starfinder as you're doing their yeah. line of um, comics. And so there's kind of two things on that front. Like, well, what, one, because the Angels of Adrift, I believe is the name of uh, the, the first comic yes. there. What was that process like of coming back into a universe mm. that you'd left? And so, and you're getting it years onwards where they've had a lot of like, they've gone in different directions. They have updated it. So you're coming back into this world, but then you're also able to, well, A, bring back a lot of your, what you brought to launching the project in the first place, but then also 
maybe getting a bit of license to take it into a new direction or at least put a different spin on what is now newly freshly established Starfinder. Right, right. Um, it was actually really delightful. Um, and part of that is, you know, I had always told, even when I left, I told uh, Mark Moreland, who's in charge of a lot of, a lot of the licensing stuff there uh, nowadays, I had told him, hey, like I'm, you know, I'm working on my own stuff, but I am still available for freelance, especially if you <laughs> ever do Starfinder comics. Like, <laughs> yes. in. Um, and so uh, fortunately, you know, five, six years later, when he hit me up and said, hey, we're going to do Starfinder comics. Do you want to write them? Um, I was able to say I was in a place where I could say, yeah, like, let's go for it. <laughs> um, and you know, I still had to go through the process the same way any author did. You know, I had to write up outlines and get them approved by the team and whatnot. You know, I, and they knew sort of broad strokes, what they wanted out of the comic. They knew that they wanted it tied into the drift crash, uh, campaign event. And they knew that, uh, they wanted it to go somewhere outside the packed worlds pretty quickly. Um, and so I, you know, I took all that into account and then wrote up a pitch and they liked it. And then largely they let me kind of just do my thing. Um, and fortunately, you know, I do know the setting in the game very well. Um, so it, it worked, it was a great sort of symbiotic relationship there. Um, but it was nice, like you say, like there was both old things, like getting to bring in characters like Keskadai and Obazaya and these characters that I was deeply emotionally connected to. Mm. Um, but also, uh, in the party, there's also the iconic precog, which was created a long time after I left. Yes. Um, and that's Siravel the elf. Um, and I was super excited. You know, they said they actually, when they were pitching it, they said, you know, the party composition is up to you, but we would like Siravel to be in there. And I said, great, because that (laughs) character, uh, when I had seen that character first created, I really liked it both, um, you know, both because the class is cool, you know, just the, the precog in general dealing mm. with time and whatnot um, seemed really interesting. But also from sort of a representational standpoint, uh, like the fact that she is a chronically ill person who has trouble walking around and uses a chair sometimes, like given the situation that my wife and I are in, it's like, oh, there's a lot to be said about yeah. that. And yeah. I feel like I can do some do some justice to that. Right. Uh, so that really appealed to me. Um, and I'm glad they let me, uh, bring her in as well. Um, but yeah, it was actually a really smooth process. And then dynamite is great to work with the, you know, the artist Edumena, like really just kicks ass and has a lot of creativity that he brings to not just, you know, illustrating the existing aliens that you already recognize, but also bringing in new aliens and new starship designs and stuff just straight out of his head that you go, Oh, I want to, I want somebody to stat that up, you know, like, I think that's, that is a great service that, uh, art and especially comics can offer to a game is like, inspire us. Have you, uh, have you requested him to, uh, draw a, a little blob with a, with a fedora, fedora? and a gun? <laughs> no, no, uh, Bobby the Blob private eye remains locked firmly in a shoebox somewhere. <laughs> Incredible. So for those uh, wondering, uh, do we have a do we have a set date for the uh, the comic um, Angels of Adrift? Uh, it's late June, late I believe. June. It's like the twenty first, but I might be getting it wrong. It's twenty something. You'd think I'd know. That's that's right. <laughs> we'll you, shout you'd think, it out. You'd think we'd know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but uh, and then Dark Hearts is coming out the sixth in the states, and I think it might even be slightly earlier internationally. So you know, what? start. <laughs> 
start checking your stores or just pre-order and you'll get it you'll get it first yeah. i mean it's australian time so we're a week before you so we'll get it a week early so that's, that's <laughs> right. i was gonna say if you're if you're saying it's available in australia before america i will i will eat my shoe because nothing ever comes out here first <laughs> unless it's horrible shark attacks <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they come they come here first <laughs> and um well look first and foremost James, as we're, as we're kind of wrapping up, um, just want to say a, a massive thank you for taking the time to uh, have a chat with us and talk about decades worth of, of past stuff and kind of what you're getting up to now. It's, it's it's always a real joy for us to sit down with people that have been involved with the games that we've just spent a couple of months with, mm. like playing, because that's kind of the joy of, of what we get to do is we get to discover new settings, new worlds and new systems and really kind of dive into it. So yeah. really appreciate what you do and what you've done today. Thank, yeah, thank you. This was super fun. And it's a, <laughs> it's a nice chance to reminisce and go, Oh yeah. Wow. Yeah. Like let's, Go listen to Grandpa James talk about the old days. <laughs> the last thing I will say uh, in our in our season uh, among the dust, we, uh, one of the players, Phil, does have a Sharon who who is uh, able to be tempted with the allure of a choice <laughs> and loves yes. it. Yeah, so I thought you'd be happy to hear yes. that. <laughs> we always no, go. That's perfect. You might be able to make a decision. He goes Ooh. oh. <laughs> And we would Amazing. be remiss if we uh, didn't mention so for those listening. Obviously, next week, uh, so this is the final time that we're in the Starfinder world. Next week, yes. Ellen, what are we doing? Uh, we will be playing Die, the TTRPG by Kieran Gillen, uh, illustrated Ooh. by Stephanie Hans and produced by Rowan Rook and Deck uh, Gaiman. Gaiman? Gaiman? <laughs> Sorry, I Gaiman. turned, I turned <laughs> southern there for a second. Uh, yes, it's uh, very flawed people sitting around to play a TTRPG and uh, figuring out if they're playing a game or if a game is playing them. I'm, I'm very excited to, to run it, especially with our, our two New wonderful guest stars, uh, Max Garcia Underwood and Luna Godfrey, who people may know as Luboffin. So, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be a wild tonal shift, people, from Starfinder. I'm <laughs> so get ready for nice. that. Fighting for my life to stop a sneeze from happening right now. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, so yeah, tune in for that next week with Die. And uh, lastly, yeah, again, James, thank you so much. And we appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you. And also, if anybody wants to find me online, um, yes. you know, I'm always happy to chat. I'm on Twitter at James L. Sutter for as long as that lasts. Um, yes. Same yeah. on Instagram. Uh, or you can just go to my website at jameslsutter.com and find links to yeah, not just my writing, but in fact, if you want all this music, if at the start of this the interview you oh, didn't I've been skip looking. past all the discussion of musicals <laughs> like it's all there it's I, all there yeah i don't we kind of rocketed along but i've just got like i want to talk about hair metal <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah oh my god we didn't even get into I metal know, like, i know uh, <laughs> another, we'll, time. We'll, another time we'll drop that website into the show notes and everyone check it out uh so you have been james and <laughs> we have been <laughs> sean <laughs> and ellen that's so, right until we next week everyone <laughs> Bye. Bye. Take, take care, everybody. <laughs>you have been listening to Among the Dust, which is a Roll to Cast production. The best way to find us is on Twitter, Discord, and our Patreon. All our podcasts are on Acast, Spotify, YouTube, and all good podcatchers. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash roll to cast. 
Starfinder, and all associated properties are trademark of Paizo Incorporated, authorised through Paizo's community use policy. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odour control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.